Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and Scott, should we start the show? I, I, I don't know. Should we not start the show? Maybe. What do you think? It's your decision. Then I suppose I will foolishly plunge ahead. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of doubt-based combat strategies, indecisive idiots, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week we make our through our, our way through the fetus-infected battlefield of Arc 11 Blinding with chapters 8. Dot 11.8 and 11.b. The fight against Lord of Loss continues with Victoria employing Rain's aura as a kind of super learn by failure sense. It works, but it also forces Victoria to spiral to the bad place. A win is a win, though. R- right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Next, we jump into the second interlude of the arc, focusing on Colt and her merry escapades of being a general idiot and stumbling into bad, bad, bad situations. Hooray. Yeah, yay. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? These these are really great. Um extremely tense chapters. So I feel like uh the you know, last week we talked about how the two chapters were were horror, like there was a pervasive tone of horror through everything. There's certainly still the horror present, um, but I want to focus this week maybe more on how that is being employed to the ends of generating uh an unbelievable level of tension. Yeah, because this isn't just a fight that we're seeing. This is a fight where the stakes are are horrifying to us and and to our even more so to our point of view character. Yeah, it's kind of incredible because, like, I think on a surface level, Victoria's fight is no different than any of the other like big fights against Brute she's had throughout this this book. Mm -hmm. But. But you you add the layer on of everything going on internally with her as she's struggling through this fight. And it just it just like amplifies it. And and, and like like the, the stakes go up, the, the tension goes up, the feeling, everything around this fight is cranked up to 11 because she's got like while she's attempting to do this, she's being pummeled by her own worst feelings, her own worst doubts. The things all the things that she's been avoiding thinking about throughout this arc, throughout this book. Um, they all come crashing down on her at the same time while trying to fight one of the most powerful capes she's ever come up against. Yeah. And then uh, as we'll get into it, I'm sure that the second chapter is made extremely tense, not only because there's just this heavy uncertainty sitting on Colt as a character, but also because of the decision to end the um, uh, 11.8 with this cliffhanger of Victoria checks in on the other teams and sees that they are indeed yeah. not doing all right. So you know that something is probably going to go wrong. Um, yeah. And well, you're just waiting and, to see what. And I mean, Colt is so passive throughout the entire chapter that you're like, you like, I mean, we're, in reading a book, you don't normally feel in control of what's going to happen. But at least when your point of view character isn't generally in control, like you feel a sense of assurance and that at least things are going to go the way the character wants them to go. But but Colt is not that type of character. Um, so you just like it's it's like we're we're kind of like speeding towards this car wreck that we know something's going to go wrong with the the team of heroes we care about. Um, but, but our point of view character has absolutely no control over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. All right. Um, well, as, as usual, let's head on into these chapters for let's now. Let's do it. Yeah. 
So 11.8 opens up, uh, and we continue from where we left off in the last one with Rain reacting to Victoria's statement that she's figured out the secret use of his power. <laughs> um, and he responds, if you're right, then I'm a big fucking idiot, Precipice said. That's supposed to be a pick-me-up? Good news? Um, and in, in the background, the team kind of low-key banters while Victoria keeps her head on the fight. Yeah, so <laughs> funnily enough, Victoria replies no to these questions, but due to the rest of the heartbroken kind of jumping into that general heartbroken escapanter, she doesn't really get to go any further with this. So it's basically like he says these questions and there's basically like th- this implicit, yeah, you're a big <laughs> fucking idiot, but yeah. no, it's not supposed to be a pick me up. Right. Like, I know that's not technically what she means, but knowing Rain, like, because she doesn't have time to really fill in any of the details of that, like, you gotta, you gotta assume that's what he's assuming, and that's really hilarious to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that read is, is wrong at all, because she continues to be pretty passive-aggressive, and so, I, I don't know if she intended that to be passive-aggressive, but kind of, it fits with the tone of the rest of what she is saying and how she treats him. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about last week, throughout the very early part of this whole chapter we are again seeing this kind of um like it's it's this almost sibling like bickering between these two characters where like you you get the like she she doesn't want to come right out and say or or acknowledge the issue she has with rain but like she's kind of sniping from the sidelines at him whenever like taking shots wherever she can and we'll get into you know specific ones of that uh when we get there but yeah it's crazy yeah, it's really interesting because like she clearly has a problem with him, but I don't think she can fully articulate and and like endorse the fact that she has a problem with him. So yeah. she it just kind of has has been festering, and I like that the story is focusing on it now. Yeah, and like so here's an example of of kind of what I mean with her like not being able to articulate her own <laughs> problem because he says I'm an expert at being hard on myself. It's either that or I'm the biggest asshole alive and I'd rather hate myself than be an asshole. Well, not a lot I could say to that. (laughs) So, like, I just adore this thread of Victoria being, like, maximally too hard on Rain and then Rain consistently managing to be even harder on himself to the extent that Victoria is almost wrong-footed by it. Yeah, how am I supposed to rag on this guy if he keeps ragging on himself? Ugh. Right. Um, You know, we joke around about that, but and we have throughout all these chapters, but I think that this is really Victoria's kind of like anti-forgiveness principles coming into conflict with someone who's arguably been the most successful person in the story at, at seeking and earning whatever you define redemption as. Like what we've seen in these past few chapters is Victoria just unsure of how to deal with this person. Like she doesn't know. She, and, and this, this conflicted feeling is, is adding to the frustration. Um, like, she doesn't know what to say to him. She doesn't know how to say it. And it leads to that quick frustration and admonishment. And, but at the, at the, behind it, I think there's still this recognition that he has this inherent guilt complex with all this stuff. And, and, and that is showing that he feels bad about what he did and is trying to work towards it. And, and I think she just has trouble like, like taking those two different things is her feelings about forgiveness. The fact that he is honestly and earnestly seeking the forgiveness and marrying these two conflicting things together in her head just creates this general confusion and she just doesn't know how to handle it. And so she's like, she's snippy a little bit, but like she doesn't like the thing to say to him in this moment, Victoria is you're probably beating yourself up too much. And she like tries to do that and he comes back with something and then she's like, yeah, well, I mean, that's a good, good point. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Right. 
yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see where their relationship kind of evolved. I guess from yeah after this because yeah they haven't had they haven't been forced to work just the two of them kind of relying on each other in this way and uh, yeah. it, it's it's a great story development I think yeah and that's kind of what I love about we talked about this before but I love that we've split our characters up and it allows for this kind of one on one Victoria and Rain. Uh, interaction that we just haven't gotten to see throughout the story un- until this point um, since he went through all his big change and progress and things. So like, yes, we're splitting them up for specific narrative reasons that we'll see in the future, but it, it also just serves, you know, functionally in the story as a way to to zoom in on these guys. Absolutely. Yep. And I like that Victoria can't, can't respond to rain and his guilt complex, but you know who sure can who? chastity. <laughs> who says an alternative precipice find someone else to show them how hard you can be for them having an external pressure release can be very nice um i love it it's great yeah. i love that he immediately looks at her and she's like i didn't mean me yeah i just meant beating up some people and it's like yeah you yeah did. he's like oh yeah and he's like oh yeah of course sorry oh, oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so realistic oh uh, it's it's wonderful so here, Victoria asks him to use his doubt power on her all out, and he reacts with like incredulity and, and almost anger, she thinks, yeah. and saying it would make sense to try out his power uh, in a safe, controlled environment, not here on the battlefield. And uh, Vicky responds a bit snarkily that powers don't really lend themselves to testing all that well. I think you're underselling the snarkiness just a bit. I yeah. mean, she literally says, fun fact, powers don't actually usually work that way. Let me do it just a let me just here. I'm just going to pull up uh, Internet Explorer, do a quick uh-huh. uh, Internet query on all the moments where starting your sentence with fun fact uh, led to a constructive, <laughs> positive conversation. All right. It's uh, it's collating. Uh-huh. All right. It's process. Zero. Zero, zero times. Mm-hmm. Starting Sounds a sentence right. with fun fact never leads to any kind of constructive thing. And I, like I, I love it because it's not to say that Victoria is wrong here. Right. Like the bad guys are here. Um, they're going to make all of our heroes into like fetus koozies if we don't do something. <laughs> so like it, it makes sense what she's saying here, but yeah, she's being really, really snippy and snarky about it. And it's just like, it's escalating the kind of general tension between the two of them. Yeah. That's why I love it. feels like kind of a sibling barb throwing. Yeah. It's part of her. Like you dare question me on Cape lore. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but also like mixed in with the, she kind of already doesn't like him that much. Yeah. There's, there's this little, there's this little line here that I love after, after rain's tone is, is detected as angry and incredulous. Victoria thinks a part of that was probably that I was reversing course on things. I told him again and again. <laughs> yeah, no shit. You just like yelled at him like three minutes ago about stop using your aura on me. And it's like, okay, but now I need you to use your aura on me. Like, I, yeah, I know I yelled at you many times in the past, but this time <laughs> do it. Yeah. Of course he's going to be like, what? No. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, I mean, like from from an objective point of view, it's almost like it's almost like he's finally trying to listen to her previous um, issue. And, and then he does. And then she reverses it. It's like that's that's extremely frustrating to the point where you might feel like you're being gaslit. But uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And then um, the, the perfect end of this conversation is do your best. I told Precipice do my worst. You mean 
Yeah, I said. Um, I just I, I love like I think that's like a, a perfect encapsulation of this entire conversation they just had. And I, I, I love it so much. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I, I like that. It's just classic, classic rain. Do your worst. Yeah. Right. That's what he does. Yeah. Old, old screw up rain. Old screw up rain. And, and, all, and if his mission is to screw up, then of course he'll succeed. Mm-hmm. So Victoria charges Lord of Loss with rain backing her up as the rest of the team tries to find a way out. On her way, she sees and decides to incapacitate two unpowered mercenaries with guns, seemingly not wanting to have to deal with the added wrinkle of people shooting at her while, while she fights. Uh, she actually has a short chat with them after um, knocking them around, trying to dissuade them from working for Lord of the Lost at all. Yeah, I, I adore this little interaction. And I think like when you're reading it live, you're just like, oh, we're doing this little side thing before we move on to the main event. But actually this this interaction with these guys ends up being pretty important to the the conflict that's going on inside Victoria throughout this entire fight. This is this is a, a reflection of a lot of the struggle that she's she had with Lord of Loss in last week's show where she was arguing with him about his his sense of morality and his code and his rules and everything. Um, and we see here that these guys are loyal to LOL because he's providing them homes, a place to live, a place to survive. And if they die in this battle, that's still going to go to their families. And so they're very loyal to this guy who is helping them out. And Victoria tries to make a case. She tries to argue that they're putting their lives in the hands of this madman that will throw away loved ones without care. And they just kind of reject that. Um, say he was very upfront with how his his rule system works with us. And we're OK with this. This is we're fine with it. And and I, I this is fascinating to me because. I do think Lord of Loss is a monster. Um, I think later in this chapter, we'll see him kind of gleefully throw capes into nursery's baby face hugger grossness. Um, and I think his prioritization of his job is like a, just a great justification to kind of let yourself do whatever you want. I think this rule based system that he has is like a great excuse for just getting doing whatever. Um, but I do love that this system kind of flies right in the face of Victoria's general system. Um, her general idea of right and wrong and, and always do good and always trying to be bringing people together. Um, and, and she's not quite sure how to respond to it, right? She doesn't know how to counter this kind of ideology. And we see here that she doesn't get it either. She disarms these guys, but she convinces them of nothing. She wishes, she wishes that she'd have a long time to sit down and have a long conversation with these guys. But, um, she doesn't get that. But I don't I don't know if like the assumption here is I want a long time to sit with them. The assumption here is that if I if I just had like an hour to sit down with these guys and explain to them, I would be able to convince them that the, the, the things they believe in, the things that they're doing, the people they're supporting are wrong. I don't know. I, I, I think these guys I think these guys countered what her best argument was, which is just this guy's a bad guy and you're supporting the bad guy who's doing terrible things. And it doesn't seem to face them yeah i mean to take like their from their view the world has ended they're doing everything they possibly can to try to keep themselves and their loved ones like fed and alive and her her perspective is like yeah the way we do that is we keep civilization on its feet and in order to do that we have to do all these complicated things involving having a united front of of uh, you know, law enforcement and and heroes against the villains and the and the chaotic bad guys, and they're just like, 
look, that's all. I mean, I'm imagining this conversation and them just kind of being like, that's all well and good. But uh, I'm all I can really do is take care of my family. Yeah, like, I, I need a house. Yeah, <laughs> like you're you're great. Um, I wish I would follow your your strict code and your strict copying. Um, that would be great, but that would leave me without a house. And this guy's gonna give me a house, right? So, yeah, but I I I am glad you pulled out that moment where she she thinks to herself, "I wish I'd had a long time to sit down and talk to them because it's just such a it, it's almost a jarring thought in the middle of this fight." Or she's like, her yeah. priority in the middle of this of this fist fight is. I want to talk to these guys. Yeah, well, I mean, I it, it's certainly to me an, an endearing quality of hers because she is so, you know, convinced of of the rightness of her actions and the rightness of her character that she really believes um that all it will take to convince people to follow her path is just sitting them out and talking to them and explaining them. I think I think that shows one, you know, just a general faith in people's abilities to to realize the right thing and to to change their ways and do the right thing. But two, it just shows an absolute faith in her own ideology, the things that she subscribes to. She really are earnestly believes in these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It, it is an endearing character trait. So she finally squares off against Lord of the Lost after dealing with those guys, and she starts to feel doubt about her plan to fight him and then immediately recognizes that as Rain's power, uh, and then she commits to just enduring it. And as she begins to fight Lord of the Lost with uh, the remnant of like a, the, the crane hook from the last chapter, we see how her internal monologue and her thoughts shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first it's subtle, but it's increasingly more dramatic uh, so at first, her italicized thoughts are uniformly too hard on herself, too negative. Uh, her memories and thoughts focus on times in the past that she lost and failed. Uh, it starts at the beginning with remembering losing to Lord of Loss at the community center, and it just kind of goes from there. Yeah, and, and we've been talking kind of all arc about how there's this frustrated, unsure, testy Victoria um, and as she lets Rain's doubt settle in on her, all of this frustration just starts pouring out of her. All the anger she's felt about things not going her way, both in this arc and in the story as a whole. The, the conversation from the mercenaries moments ago that didn't go her way comes pouring out of her. Like th- this, this feeling that my way is the right way. I, I am the, like me and my teams are the only ones trying to hold everything together. And I just don't understand why these people don't understand that. Like, Mm -hmm. I love this. This sucked. Every bit of it sucked. It sucked that Lord of Loss had more cachet with the regular people than we did. It sucked that this neighborhood was a nightmare and someone was going to track the damage, blame all parahumans, and it would land in our lap before we even touched Lord of Loss. It sucked that all these people support this guy, over us it doesn't make any sense it's not fair it sucks and this is like all this frustration that that i think she's kind of pretty successfully kept you know somewhat controlled is just starting to pour out of her and like it kind of like the thing about rain's doubt power like i I don't think it brings out anything that wasn't already there right it's just Mm -hmm. like it just like forces it to the surface kind of so like it's it's very easy to write this off as just an effect of his power but this is all inside of victoria it's just because of this it's kind of like rain's power is just kind of like getting drunk does the emotions (laughs) just kind of start pouring out of you a little bit yeah yeah exactly it's it's removing whatever would normally be inhibiting this kind of negativity in her because it's not like she doesn't have negativity from time to time but she also kind of has her like built-in 
um, thought patterns of, of, of answering to those things. Like, you know, you have the thought of like, man, I really, I really did really mess that up. And then you have kind of the counter thought in your head. That's like, well, you know, you, you, uh, it's the first time you ever tried that thing. So, you know, you're bound to fail sometimes. Like, like the, the mind kind of has a conversation with itself. It seems like the part of her mind that's good at being, um, like, uh, forward thinking mission focused is offline. And it's, and it's all just this tirade of, here's here's how everything is bad and how and how it's your fault specifically right. how it's your fault kind of like like if right. you were if you were doing better at, at your job in general then these things that suck wouldn't be the case well yeah and i think that lines up with what we were just talking about this that this earnest belief in her that people would follow her and would respect her and would listen to her and her team if she just got the opportunity to explain to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, when she realized that frustration, it, it does immediately kind of turn into this. Well, if that's the case, then it's my fault that they're not, mm-hmm. if I'm failing to convince them, then I'm failing. And it goes like, we kind of journey backwards in time back to, you know, her original trauma, her original trigger event, uh, thing as we move through, this chapter right yeah she she even explicitly makes that connection at some point yeah yeah so um yeah just like for example the kinds of of internal monologue things that are popping up no not good enough failing you're better than this and it's just this litany of negativity that just seems to be mentally crushing her at first and and just kind of making it harder for her to fight toward the beginning but uh, eventually there's a point when the two combatants exchange words and Victoria seems to be able to leverage Lord, Lord Loss's condescension to give her a hearty boost of terrifying anger. And then she attacks him again as he goes after the others, landing a few good hits this time. Yeah, we're kind of seeing the 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 warrior monk aspect of her personality be tossed aside, right? Like she's the, the this controlled, emotionless, strategic fight um, is has switched to one absolutely fueled by emotion. And, and that emotional fuel is every single doubt and insecurity and fear and bad memory that she's been harboring inside herself. This entire story is now fueling her in this fight. And that is very different from the person she wanted to be all those arcs ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to focus on, on what the text is doing here and not just, not just the, not just what this means for Victoria, but also I think how this affects, your reading experience. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to read kind of a long bit here. You're better than this, I told myself, with the voice of everyone I disappointed and a dark, joyless feeling in my gut, swimming uphill, drowning, falling, suffocating under disappointment. And then a bit later, you're better than this, I told myself, and it was a condemnation, a feeling that had followed me all my life. You have so much potential, my teachers had said, but if I focused on friends, my teachers would point it out, saying I needed to focus on my schoolwork. If I focused on school, I lost friends, got called stuck up. If I was glory girl, I was neglecting my life in the daylight hours. And if I was Victoria, then I was neglecting my dreams. If I separated the two, then I fell to pieces. And if I commingled them, I fucked that up too. That was when I couldn't be sure if my friends were were with me because me or because I was a superheroine. And when my mom had to tell me to take my headphones off or correct how I dealt with the public. And it's just this, like... Not only are you kind of appreciating how dark it's getting for her, but but you're you're actually like me as I was reading this was just getting like drawn into this spiral of of just black like 
um, hopelessness, kind of like I was really getting kind of drawn into her headspace personally. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think it's because like, you know, using using contradictory like elements, I think is really effective writing because it's infinitely relatable and like it gets a rhythm to it. Um, and that's, I think that passage you just read kind of has a rhythm to it. It's like focus on school, focus on friends, focus on Victoria, focus on glory girl, like, you know, focus on separating them, focus on pulling them together. Um, all these different choices and all these different methods. And, and there's a rhythm to that, like a beep, 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 beep. And it, it, it kind of, gets you into the mindset and the, and the, the feeling of contradiction there and the impossibility of, of those choices. And it is so effective. I like it so much. I also like this little bit at the end here. She, she links back to my mom had to tell me to take my headphones off. This is something that she brought up two chapters ago. Um, that, that yes, I think there was like, we talked about it then there was this feeling of kind of, uh, under the surface resentment there that she didn't really focus on in the moment. Um, but, like that comes back around again. Like, so you see, like she links back to that. That's something she's still thinking about, even though she's much further in the battle than she was then. I, I like, I think that that connection, that line drawn to it really helps you understand her headspace here as well. Yeah. Right. Basically you, the summary of this, of this passage is you can't do anything right. Yeah. 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 And that is, I mean, that is her OG trauma, right? That is mm -hmm. the feeling that led to her becoming glory girl in the first place was this feeling of you have so much potential. You, there is so much you can be and can do. And the disappointment that, that she constantly felt by everyone around her is what pushed her to trigger at mm -hmm. first. Yeah. And of course, like any good trigger in the story, um, the powers don't solve that problem. As we see here, it only exacerbated it. Like this idea, like now suddenly she has more to live up to because she's become this person and it, it doesn't solve any of the problems. And, and I, I, I mean, like after everything she's gone through, all the terrible things that she's gone through since these moments, that is still one of the, the primary things she feels. You have so much potential. You're better than this mm -hmm. um, is still one of the greatest things that's driving her um, is this 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 expectation that she puts on herself because she everyone else did. Um, and, and, and that's why, like, that's why she gets so frustrated and so unsure because she's running up against failure against things are falling apart and it, it's got to be my fault. Only I can fix it. And if, and if it's not being fixed, then I am failing and I'm better than that. All right. So one of the things I just wanted to touch on before we move on is this one quote as she's kind of spiraling this one thing she mentioned, she starts like thinking about how um, no one really understood, you know, uh, and, and accepted her as herself. And then she says there had been very few people actually that had accepted me as me too. One had made me her plaything before discarding me and and then she interrupts herself. She interrupts her own thought process to to relay that Rain's power enhanced that stab of guilt that came in the wake of a thought I knew was unfair, glossing over context for the sake of absorbing the brunt of the hurt. And the second one was Dean and I let him die. So I think this is really revealing for a couple of reasons, right? Because, I mean, this this recognition that she was being unfair to Amy a little bit in there and that she was doing it specifically because lacking the context and being unfair, uh, 
absorbs the brunt of the hurt of remembering that moment. Um, and then the second part of this is that, I mean, once again, we go back to Dean and this thought that I let I'd let him die, like putting the responsibility for Dean on her shoulders once again. Like, obviously, it is not her fault that Dean died. Like, it, like he died fighting a freaking Endbringer. Like, it is, that is not her fault. But she's still putting this on herself. She's putting both of these things on herself. She's just not even willing to admit um that she's putting the Amy part of this on herself. She it is easier to to push that blame onto Amy than it is to accept that she's blaming herself. See interesting. I, I read the reference to the stab of guilt as referring to um or or the um the glossing over of the context as referring to the second was Dean and I let him die. Like she knows she's not being fair to herself when she says I let Dean die, but the part of her that's being influenced by Rain's power is still is still throwing thoughts of that form at her and, and, and it's still hitting her just as hard. Um, so like, yeah, that, that was, that was how I interpreted that framing. Yeah. But I, that, overall, I think, I think we share the same kind of interpretation that like, she's, she's just on this tirade now. <laughs> she's just kind of, right. she's got ahead of steam and she's just uh, going to say all of these things sort of designed. It's like, it's like the worst things that anyone could say to hurt her. Yeah. And even while she's like, you know, some of these things aren't really accurate, but they still hurt. Um, and thus yeah. she's going to think them. Well, and the thing that like that we have to to contextualize with whole, this whole thing is this is like, remember at the end of the last chapter when she's like, I figured out how your power is supposed to work. And like. She wins this fight, but I do not think this is like a sustainable ongoing strategy of battle. Right. Like this, this seems to generally be a bad idea. This is not sustainable. This is not something you're going to want to do again. And I think by the time we get to the end of this, she's like, nah, yeah. never, never doing that again. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think honestly, this is a particular battle context where it, where it's unusually helpful, where it's just, she's going back to fight the same guy again. Right. And like she, she, she knows that she, that the kinds of lessons she has to learn in this fight are going to be ones that are kind of, simple and straightforward like it, yeah. it it's not like i don't know a lot of battles in parahumans you you're, you're changing opponents frequently the the situation's changing constantly yeah. and and thus like in a, something that lets you learn from a mistake you just made isn't necessarily helpful but in this context it really is yeah especially when it, those mistakes are simple and like timing based and just like approach based it's not like redefining an entire battlefield strategy it's just i need to move a little bit faster there or hit a little bit quicker there right exactly yeah. yep so yeah so she, still she continues to criticize herself she criticizes her timing she's not quite landing all of her shots lord of the lost gets up again and she attacks again fighting better this time anticipating his movements landing her hits with a sense of timing being relentless and, and she's doing great and like I, I i'm not sure when exactly i like fully rocked like like what the chapter was doing in terms of like oh i get it like she's it's making her better at fighting because she's not making yeah. the same mistakes again it was probably around here honestly i think i took longer than some people notably um you who apparently got it <laughs> the end of the previous chapter i the, it was not like what exactly what i was it thinking was when i said that last goddamn week but close it was, to what you were saying <laughs> it was pretty close yeah um <laughs> I, like well and and that's because this i think this works because like it lines up exactly with what's rain, what rain is going through. Like this is, this is a microcosm of rain's arc, right? This power is because he's a guy that's trying to learn from his mistakes to trying to like, 
he's using his he's using guilt as a method of like trying to improve and be better and learn from the past and 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 get better but i like that this is also representative of the the risks in in focusing on that too much because what we've been doing with rain a lot lately has been showing that if you dwell too much on that guilt if you dwell too much on that doubt it spirals you to a place where you're just destroying yourself and not actually improving and i think that's like Victoria is like struggling is like on the edge of a knife struggling between those two sides like on the one hand she's using this as kind of a battlefield learn quickly thing to to get through this fight but on the other side she is spiraling um, because of all these feelings that are pushing up and and that's I think what like in in a broader sense is is Rain's current struggle is this this feeling that he's how how do you measure the the beating yourself up to the wanting to improve and actually using using that doubt and using that regret in an effective way to better yourself rather than just sit there and beat yourself up. Um, and that's that. I mean, that's why I guessed even close to what this was, because it just it's a beautiful idea that fits so perfectly with with who Rain is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's it's um he's nowhere near the point of saying like, all right, I think I'm good now. I think I'm just going to yeah. focus on doing good going forward. No, no. And, and his power is not, is <laughs> the manifestation of that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, she, she is doing great. She's, she's hitting him. She's hitting her timings. <laughs> uh, and then she gets, uh, spiked like a volleyball down through the floor and into a pit of Cronenberg fetus tongues. And here we go. Yep. Here we go. Um, so we're treated to an exceedingly graphic description of like a vesicle of fluid bursting against her face, shoving a knobbly umbilicus down her throat. And she realizes she can't afford to just tear the thing out of her because it might break and require surgery to be removed. And in this moment, she thinks to herself that she would rather go out fighting, which I mean, literally translates to that. She would rather die than have to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And, like I thought this was gross when we were just like watching her watch it happen to Parian. Um, but when you get the nice the nice text that describes what it feels like to go down your throat and like spread itself out and and grow and you can feel all that stuff. Ew. Yeah. Ew. Really gross. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I think this rather go out fighting thing is a really good illustration of just how far fucking with rain's power has messed her up at this point. Like, yes, this is, this is Victoria and that the idea of having to go back to the hospital is, is terrifying to her, but this is enhanced by that, that doubt that's coming in. Those, those strong feelings that are, they're radiating off of rain. Right. It's, it's part of me wants to say she's been in worse situations than this, although I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, (laughs) But like the, the fact that she's thinking these extremely dire thoughts is what really kind of, puts you in that in that place of like oh man like regardless of how life or death this actually is our beloved protagonist is um almost you know over the edge and uh i don't know just it it makes it seem like even if she gets out of this alive and intact which you know spoilers she does uh (laughs) it's gonna have a heavy toll on her yeah yeah for sure absolutely uh, so Rain starts to pelt Lord of the Lost with his blades as um, as Lord of the Lost picks up Victoria, who's still kind of struggling against the fetuses. 
and one of his silver blades hits Victoria's leg, and she reacts by trying to kick Lord Lost with that same leg, and he stops her from breaking off her own leg, and then she uses that moment of kind of him changing his grip to tear free of him with the wretch. Um, however, the wretch also takes it upon itself to yank the umbilicus out of her face, um, which basically works. Uh, and then she continues to use small bursts of strength to drag it out, uh, causing excruciating pain and apparent damage to her throat as she does so. Yeah. And I, I really want us to kind of zoom in on that moment with the leg, because I think this is a really fantastic show. Don't tell moment where the text like makes it explicit that it's not just she, it's not just Victoria saying to herself, she'd rather die. Um, she's acting upon it too, because that, that blade hits that leg and she instantly goes to kick out with that leg. There's no moment of hesitation in their head. There's no moment of, uh, if this, if this lands, my leg's going to fall off. Right. There's none of that. She just does it. Um, and it's like in this moment, she doesn't care anymore in this moment. It's just, I'm going to go down, I'm going to try to take this guy out with me. And you're right that that Lord of Loss like stops that from happening. Um, and that is very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's worth noting that there's a couple of moments in this chapter and the next one where somebody loses a fight because they held back from going all out. Uh, in this case, it's Lord of Loss. You could argue that the fight could have gone any number of ways. But here he gives her the chance to escape, regroup and come back at him. Um, because while he may be a monster on some level, and, and I don't disagree that he is on some level, he did probably stop her from killing herself here. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's interesting because like I, she, she's also in this moment where she's willing to die and kill herself basically. But she also in the, in the real moment, in the moment where she sees it, she chooses to activate the wretch, right? Like she, like she's in a moment where she might be about to lose the battle and she activates the wretch, which does exactly what she thought it would, which is um, rip the the fetus out of her mouth in a way that breaks it off and it becomes a lot more complicated. So e even in this moment of I'd rather die, I'd rather go out fighting, she does choose to separate herself and and back away a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which I find interesting. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, that um, Lord of Loss is this pretty complicated character that it is interesting that he chose to do that and i think like there's so much there's so much about this game that we've been talking about throughout this whole book like the idea of the rules between capes and the and the the cops and robbers game that you know has has collapsed in some ways but is still being upheld in others and it's kind of weird how we see that um and we see it again in the next chapter too when characters are very upset with other people for their perceived uh breaking of the game and I just find that interesting that like, you know, when you, when you have this, this, this code that only certain people are abiding by it, it's not effective, but it's still being adhered to in certain cases. Yeah. It, it's very interesting here because like he, she actually feels like he's gone too far right. just by condoning the use of nursery's power in the field. Yeah. Like, I don't think Victoria thinks that there's any like <laughs> okay way to use that power. Um, whereas he still has this line where he, he said like he, in this fight, he says stuff like, I'll go easy on you. And, and, and it, like, it's clear, it's actually kind of clear. We've seen him in a couple of fights now. It's yeah. clear that he doesn't go for the kill, even though he's like in bringer sized basically, and yeah. could just crush people who aren't, um, I mean, 
he, he could he could probably crush her if he just kind of caught her out of position and he could definitely crush anyone who isn't super durable but he doesn't right so yeah. so like he he does have his kind of code right it's just very different from hers and that's that's cool yeah yeah and nursery's power is an interesting one too because i do agree that like on the surface it seems like the most horrible thing ever but there's no indication that like you would die right like it seems like the the these yes you have these like baby monsters growing inside of you um and and to do that to a person is very horrible but I don't think it's going to kill you. Like it says specifically when it is blocking her airway here, it kind of like readjusts to allow her to breathe. Like it doesn't right. want the, the container it's filling to die. Um, yeah. So yes, it is. It is awful. It is horrible. I, I, I see the point of view of nursery of Lord loss. It says this isn't against any kind of unwritten rule because we're not, we're not killing anybody. We're just impregnating them. Yeah, I I agree. It's interesting that we don't really understand what kind of the final stage of this xenomorph life cycle is. Like, do, <laughs> do does does a baby eventually emerge from that person? Is it a is it like a master minion of nurseries? Um, if so, does it come out in a way that like severely injures or kills the person? Um, yeah. Or or is that not even part of it? Like, is there not a is there not a baby? Is it just kind of it incapacitates them. I mean, I, we don't know. And I think that, I think it's actually fine that we don't know because it allows us to imagine the worst. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, I, I agree. It's, it's an interesting, like, like it's <laughs> the reasons why this is so horrifying are, are not so easy necessarily to just kind of put your finger on. Sure. Yeah, I agree. So, yep, uh, Victoria then goes, she, you know, after she finishes the fight, or rather, sorry, after she finishes pulling the stuff out of her mouth, she thinks Duh. straight back into the situation that the messy, bloody lesson was telling me I should stay clear of. Because if I didn't, I knew I wouldn't ever. This was a potential retire from costumes level of badness and bitterness. And I love that, like, at any moment where the chapter has kind of moved away from how bad Victoria is like emotionally doing, we have moments like this that recenter us. Like she has just, she just had a a small win in the fight where she got this thing successfully out of her throat. Thank God there are no little pieces that fell in there that would horrify her. We're doing good. Okay. Let's go back to the attack. And then we level set with this idea of if I don't go in right now, I'm not going to be a cape anymore, which is like, I mean, that is that is zooming right back to the, the the place where she was at the very beginning of this book. Right. Where she just like was so disturbed with the whole thing, was so disturbed with the idea of her powers and and all of the stuff that she had. She had removed herself from that life. Um, and now we're back there. We're back to that that feeling that like this is this is this is retire from this stuff kind of thing. That's where I am right now. So if, if anyone is if anyone reading is underselling the effect that this is having on Victoria in their minds, let this be clear that she is real, real bad right now. Yeah, right. It's almost um, it's almost like Victoria has been replaced by another character, but but not at all, really, because this is all uh, of the same continuum of, of mentality that we've seen from Victoria. It's ju- it's just the far extreme of the worst we've ever seen her. And yeah, without any real kind of, mitigating uh moments of like pausing and and trying to trying to marshal her strengths it's just her strength right now is um that she's going to use this 
self-loathing she later calls it to drive herself forward yeah um and like like it's interesting because like retiring retiring from costumes as a as like a bullet point to discuss is like a fascinating thing to even enter her head because she she did have like two years of well okay she was she was a blob for a while and and then she had two years of of not being able to escape from the cape scene being on the patrol block but not quite being able to get back into being a cape and now she's finally you know a full-on cape she she has a lot of victories under her belt it's been a struggle and this is so bad that it's making her contemplate walking away from all of this again, yeah. uh, which yeah. is, it's very like, that's just like you said, I like the word level setting. It's, it's making us aware of that. This is as dark as we've seen her. Basically. She didn't think about walking away from capes after the goddess incident. Um, but he, here, here we have it. Yeah, absolutely. It's bad. Yep. So she returns to the fight just in time to rescue rain and chastity from being placented. She, she gives rain uh, the Neo hand gesture uh, to keep hitting her with the power. And this time she just beats Lord of Lost like a complete badass, all while like riding this tide of profound black self-hatred and fear of disappointment. She finally digs her way inside his body, and she gets her hands on his breaker core, forcing him to transform back into a man. The warrior monk is dead. Long live the angry doubter? Yeah, we'll, we'll workshop it. You know what my favorite part about this though? What? After she's she's spiraling, she's in this terrible, terrible place, but she finally manages to win. And what is the first thing she does after she reverts him to his normal form? She negs the fuck out of his outfit. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It it God, I like yeah. I, I understand she's in a really bad place. I, I totally get that, but this this moment where it's like uh, that yeah. looks like the type of thing a guy would just walk into a store and say, get me everything off the the mannequin. Yeah. It's like, you got him, Victoria. Boom. Yeah. He's a poser on top of everything else. <laughs> I knew I was right to hate this guy. <laughs> um, and then he kind of puts the cap on it by saying, good fight. I punched him in the mouth. Boom. Got him. Yeah. Deserved. Um, so, yeah, again, it's obvious that Victoria is like in the worst place we've ever seen her. Um, mm-hmm. At least in terms of like this level of out of control fury, because not only does she punch an innocent, well, okay, that was the wrong word, punch an unarmed and incapacitated <laughs> man. Innocent. No. Can you imagine if you didn't catch yourself, yeah, the me, comments we me, would get? Let me find replace that. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 a guy who she'd already beaten, punch him in the mouth. And then, you know, she has this moment where she's threatening him and he's like, he's, she's threatening him to throw him into the nursery goo. And he's like, yeah, you wouldn't do that. You're too noble. And, he, and it says, I pulled off my mask and pulled down my hood. I waited, staring him down. As his eyes studied my face, his expression faltered. Did we get through? Um, I, I just love that. So I love that from a writing perspective because Wildbo doesn't have to say, my face looked very angry. Yeah. She doesn't, he, he doesn't describe, there's no description of what her face looks like. It's just like, her face is so terrifying that, it cracks his composure. Right. Yeah. And, and I like, and that I love the, did we get through part of it too? Because like here, even at the end, even at the end of all this doubt spiral and, and like, like complete uncertainty in her whole way of life, she is still hopeful that maybe, maybe at the end of this thing, I got through to him. I got through to him. I did it. I was successful. And, um, the answer to that question is no, no, she didn't get through because he mouths off again. And then um, Chastity comes in and 
and bitch slaps him um, <laughs> right to, to unconsciousness. But like, it's just like, I, I just love that. I love that moment in her though. Like even in this moment of like, she's got to feel awful, like worse than she's ever been. Like she's still holding on hope to the idea that something we said to him, something in this whole interaction with this guy got through to him. Maybe, maybe. And she's grasping onto that hope. And of course um, it's a wild bow story. So that's, you know, just yanked right away from her. Uh, but it, it's, it's like I said earlier in the story, it's just this commendable, wonderful uh, character trait to have that, that kind of endears me to her. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. So I like this moment toward the end where she, she's thinking, um, like, well, this was a, this is a complete fucking disaster. And, and, <laughs> and then, and then she tells him to turn off his power and then she's like, could have been worse. And like, and, and, and I like it because like, it's, that's like Victoria isn't actually this negative, sad sack right. character. She, she's, she's this like fierce, aggressive, self-assured person who also has, this trauma that 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 drives her from time to time and those two parts of her war against each other and it, it's kind of like we were missing that part of her for this whole interlude or this whole chapter where she's just getting so down um and, yeah. and it's good to be reminded like yeah yeah that that's that's our victoria is is the one who's able to to look over this scenario and say yeah at least at least, at least we got him you know <laughs> yeah right and and you know the thing that I love about that is is if we're continuing on our Rain's doubt thing as as getting drunk and and releasing inhibitions or releasing emotions that are there like that's that's like getting drunk and having these things that you feel that are in there somewhere but don't you don't usually allow to come to the surface in the moment when you're feeling those things in the moment they feel 100% real right they feel like totally 100% this is how I feel this is how I've always felt why have I never let myself feel this way and then you sober up and or Rain's aura is turned off and you're just like, oh, that was a little silly to feel that way right. <laughs> in retrospect. And I, I, that's that's kind of what I got from that ending of that story there, too. Like once the aura is turned off, this like realization that, oh, OK, I, I see now as re- restoring myself as I normally am, that that was a little ridiculous. Yeah. Um, not that not that it's not going to have a permanent effect on her going forward i shouldn't say permanent it will have a lasting effect on her moving into future chapters but um i i do like that 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 comparison because we we do remember this was spurned on by an aura this is not just her spiraling on her own yeah i, I do look forward to seeing what the long-term effect will be or, or how it evolves because I, I hesitate to say like oh it's it's put her in this horrible headspace so the, the consequence is going to be horrible like maybe it'll be horrible in the short term but also maybe being exposed to all of this negativity almost to a ridiculous degree could sort of like, I don't know. There's something to be said for just like standing back from yourself and seeing how ridiculous you can be in, in your own thoughts. And then you're like, Oh, I, I don't need to have those thoughts anymore. And then you, and then you actually grow from that experience. I agree. So I mean, there, I, th- I think that is kind of what rain is doing in the, in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Is this, this, this ability to let yourself feel the the worst possible feelings towards yourself allows you hopefully hopefully to go okay there's that yep now let's move on yeah from that. right I'm, I'm kind of bored of that now so yeah. Yeah. we'll see what else there is yeah all right speaking of spirals into a dark dark place let's move on into 11.b all right 
Um, well, actually, first, Victoria checks on her little wrist dealy and sees that the other team is not okay. And then yeah, we that's, that's important. Yep. Yeah. Then we go into Love and Not Be. Our second interlude chapter of this arc, and as expected, it's another member of Love Lost Gang. Um, though I don't think I saw anyone predict who, because it's Colt, the young woman who had previously lived in Hollow Point, who rejected her parents and who Nailbiter claimed as a personal henchwoman. The chapter is broken up into labeled time intervals starting at two hours ago. Yeah, we'll call this being half right, right? Because I think we said Love Lost group, but I didn't expect Colt either. But I, I also didn't expect just about anything that goes down in this chapter. So, yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> But yeah. th- you're right that this chapter does use that kind of structured anchoring device to make sure we understand where in the grand scheme of things we are, that two hours to go, 20 minutes to go now structure. Um, you could probably do it without those little beats, but I think the added clarity does nothing to diminish the chapter and only adds context where you kind of know. And it also gives you that kind of countdown, mm-hmm. um, that that feeling of inevitability that comes with knowing that one of the teams is in a bad place going into this chapter and then counting down to it. Yeah, we're counting down to that discovery that the other team is not okay. So and, yeah. and I think I think that I think that lands, you know, I think the reader understands that. Sure. Um, so this is the meeting with of Love Lost's team uh, with the mercenaries, uh, the ones who Victoria was just fighting, before any of these events went down. Uh, we're seeing a bit of the nuts and bolts of how this plan was set in motion. Um, and But not only that, uh, I think uh, wrapping around and winding through our perceptions of what's going on with these capes uh, is Colt's perspective. And her perspective is one of this frightened, extremely uncertain powerless pawn um who who has no control over what's happening to her and and that is that is pervading the narration here yeah yeah and and that is that is cult (laughs) we see we see yeah we see how she views each and every one of these people and they are all more powerful than they than she is like we don't necessarily see it but you get the feeling that she is down low and you're she's looking up at all of these bigger more powerful people and they all have things to do they all have jobs uh even even the the non-powered mercenaries have things to do but not colt she's just standing there no job no purpose no responsibilities um she's this character that's kind of defined by inaction and indecisiveness and this inability to make choices and and we kind of get that immediately by the fact that she's just standing there Mm mm-hmm She's in the doghouse too, and I don't know if I ever yeah. know why exactly she's in the doghouse, but um, we can talk about that as we go, I guess. I, I like this bit where she thinks of Lord of Loss as a giant shell of a man, which is probably the most perfect description of who he is. It's like literally true. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't help but think that that him being a shell of a man is meant to resonate on the level of character in addition to his power. Like, I think you're he's hollow. Right. There's nothing in there. Yeah, there's nothing in there but fucking terrible emojis. <laughs> yeah. There's also these little beats of nursery just being this sweet old lady who's <laughs> concerned about the well-being of her, her monster fetus face hugger baby. Yeah, it's great. <sighs> so Nailbiter, who's very clearly acting as Love Lost's voice and trusted second in command, orders Sidepiece to kind of stay behind and show the mercenaries around. This gives Colt and Nailbiter a moment alone. The parahuman asks Colt what she's going to do. And then the whole conversation ultimately revolves around this question. What is she going to do? Nailbiter mm-hmm. frames it as, are you going to stay behind and help the mercenaries? Are you going to join in the offensive with us? 
or are you going to try to run away? <laughs> just give us one answer. Yep. Just give us an answer. Pick, pick one of these. Just tell me the answer. And Cole answers that she doesn't know, which is sort of the worst possible answer, <laughs> uh, which kind of makes Nailbiter angry, but in a complicated way. Yeah. And it prompts Nailbiter to confide a lot of her story in Colt about how she was a neglected and abused young woman and an older uh, boy, she calls him, smashed out her teeth when she was young. She latched on to what she perceived as uh, Lustrum's philosophy of female empowerment, uh, but apparently kind of a more violent form of that philosophy. And then she eventually returned to her hometown and tried to get revenge on the guy who hurt her. But it was ineffectual, and her sense of powerlessness and worthlessness culminated in triggering and then using her new power to get revenge on the guy. Yeah. So, I mean, we have to spend a lot of time on this, I think, because I think this is the most important, um, you know, part of this chapter. This is doing a lot of different things at once. We're learning a little bit about Nailbiter as a character. I think Nailbiter's lust for revenge lines up with some of the things we've talked about with uh, with love lost in the past. Like, like we have this specific moment here where Nailbiter says, I was going after this person for revenge. Um, once I got it, I found I was not sated and I started reaching out to people like him, people that did similar things. And then as I cleared out those people, the, the idea of similar spread out further and further to where I was just using this to justify actions against anyone. And that is another beat in this series of conversations we've had about what what a love lost after revenge looks like. Right. Another thing to seem to reinforce this idea that this is a cycle that will not end. There is no killing my two people and then going off to my own private world to, to live in peace for the rest of my days. Um, more more evidence to reinforce this idea. Yeah, it seems like the closest thing she got to peace was being put in the birdcage. Yeah. Yeah. But but this I mean, but this whole speech, this whole story that she's giving Colt has a purpose behind it because she is telling Colt about how, you know, I I was lost. I was unsure of what to do. I attached myself to a certain person and that person's ideology. And I, you know, used that to, to force my way through life. And then I met that person and I realized that that person was not who I thought they were, that Lustrum was not the person that the, the ideology that I thought was attached to Lustrum wasn't it. And she's actually a person that doesn't like violence and doesn't want to go down these, the, these certain paths. And it's almost as if to say, Matt, it's almost as if to say, Colt, this life is not for you. Like, just leave, <laughs> just go. If you don't leave, it's bad. Shit's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's a very interesting dynamic because she doesn't actually say that. No. She doesn't say get out of here, right? It, because, and I think the the rationale there is she knows that Colt doesn't really have anywhere else to go. Yeah. Um, And that she wouldn't necessarily just be like strictly better off if she left the gang. But they're basically saying like, you're either going to be in on this or you're going to be out. Colt has the impression though that they're going to like kill her if she tries to leave which it's it's interesting because like my being in her head kind of distorted my perception of the situation to the point where I was like, yeah, it seems like nail, nail biter is going to kill her if she tries to leave. And then like reflecting on it, I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I don't nail biter and love loss kind of wanted her to choose to leave. Yeah. And um, maybe they could have made that more clear that they weren't going to kill her if she left. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, overall it's all kind of an understandable level of misunderstanding since uh, you know, Colt's not too good at, 
making decisions anyway. Yeah, I mean, like, basically, that's the whole thing is like, Colt, you've been living in this limbo. Like, you're not with us, but you're not with not not with us. Right. right. And, and we're getting to the point now where you need to make a decision. You need to choose. Here's the story. Here's like and and this idea, like she immediately latches on, like, who am I looking up to? Is it do you think I'm looking up to? And and, and I love nail biter responses. You're looking down. You're not looking up. And and so like my interpretation of this and, and I might be wrong, but my interpretation of this whole story was not that like you've attached yourself to love lost, who is this person that and and she's not the person you think she is. My interpretation of was this is you've decided that you are a certain type of person. You are looking down at yourself and you have decided that you are this different type of person and that is not who you actually are. Um and you're 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 trying to be this person, you're trying to chase this this idea of that person and do you understand that that's only going to lead to disappointment in you? That's only going to, you're only going to end up hurting yourself. Um, and she just doesn't get it. She just doesn't understand at all. Like yeah. this, this, so this whole moment at the end of the story, understand? I think so. Understand? No. no right. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Because fundamentally nail biter and love lost care about Colt on a, on a level at least. And yeah, and definitely see some of themselves in Colt and, don't want to see her go down this path, but simultaneously, these are two women who did go down this path. So <laughs> that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the wonderful contradiction here. And I think you're right that it's, they can't like, especially love lost with her, the complicated relationship she has with, with young people is this idea of just doing like a go get out of here. Nobody wants you around here anymore. They can't just leave her, right? Like yeah. they can't, they can't just like let her go in a way like where they are, they are ditching her and, and pushing her away that in, in love lost mine, would I think be a failure? Like I, I, I failed her. Like I'm repeating past mistakes or whatever, mm-hmm. but yeah, they don't, they don't, I, I get to feel like they don't want this. They don't want her to be part of the team, but they also recognize that if they're going to go forward, that's what has to happen. Like it can't, it can't be this middle ground anymore. It's not working that way. Yeah. Um. And, and they're secretly hoping that she makes the choice, the choice to leave, the choice to seek out a new life, um, hoping that, that that is where she wants to go. And of course it's, it's not because she doesn't, they're, they're trying to push her towards that in a way that is not, hundred percent clear because they want her to come to the, the conclusion by herself. Um, but, but they're hinting pretty heavily yeah. at it. Well, I don't think she's at all in a headspace where she could even make that leap of faith in herself. She yeah. has, she has no faith in herself at this point. She, she needs to be attached to someone who will fill that gap, that, that, that yeah. emptiness. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, she says it a little bit later, but it's this like, She's not a person that likes following or taking orders, but she's not a person that likes being alone either. So she's in this she's in this limbo. And that's kind of like like where she remains, even even as she's triggering later in the chapter and this right. like not ready to commit to one thing, but not fully not committing either. Right. So she eventually decides that she wants to come along for the attack, which is kind of the most aggressive of the three options. Yeah. Um, but it's also the most half hearted non decision ever. Uh, so yeah. Love Lost shows her face looking crestfallen and uh, Colt compares the expression to what Scion looked like during his decades of tortured labor. Oh, it's it's kind of heartbreaking, right? I, I think like in this chapter where we show how like terrible and monstrous Love Lost's team can be when they like 
like fight back against all these characters that we really care about. We really like these these undersiders and, and breakthrough characters and these guys are doing bad things to them um, and they're willing to do it. But we also paint her as this really sad person. Like I love I love how the text describes this. I love this caught between anger and sadness disappointment too light too loaded a word in Colt's mind now that Nailbiter had talked about it crestfallen why I just love I love the 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 usage there and like that sentence uh like disappointment too light too loaded a word in Colt's mind to to, to ascribe it to her I, I I love that like this this she's this person that is this perpetual like like sad anger lostness mm-hmm and before we move on, I just want to mention that uh, Colt specifically thinks that that uh, Love Lost is not powerful enough to destroy the world. Yeah, <laughs> which means that's going to happen. Yeah, you know? right. Exactly. So as they're about to go out into combat or start heading that way, I guess we're still we're still a couple hours out. Nailbiter offers her a pill to steal her courage. And as Colt takes the pill, there's a huge amount of nonverbal communication between Love Lost and Nailbiter that I think only really makes sense on a reread. Yeah, it's conversation that makes the already scion-looking Love Lost look even more fucking depressed. Mm-hmm. Almost as if Love Lost is like, oh, damn it, that's what she chose? Fuck. Yeah. Okay, right. fine. Thanks for going this way, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what really makes me think that they were trying to push her in a different direction. That's really the choice that they wanted to make, but they recognized that she had to be the one to make it. Um, and and this is what she's chosen now. So, okay, take this this happy pill. It's interesting because on a level, the choice that they were actually offering her and the choice that she thought she was being offered, I don't think were the same. Like maybe if she had said, I'm going to stay behind with the mercenaries, they would have said like, oh, okay, you can stay with the gang, but you're not going to be, we're not going to offer you this pill, which represents something more than a pill. Yeah. Um, but she chose the the most, the most all in most violent option. And so they say, well, if you're going to stay with us, then we're going to make you actually one of us. And then, then you're al- locked in. Yeah. I thought they almost eliminated the middle choice though. Like I think they specifically say nail biter, as she reads her indecisiveness and uh, unsurety, she basically eliminates the stay behind option. She says like, we don't trust you enough to leave you alone here. Um, so it's either go or come with us. I think you're right. Uh, that sounds familiar now. So yeah, I guess that makes, that, that makes more sense to me anyway, that, that they're basically committing to saying, if she's going to stay with us, then we're going to try to, you know, yeah. push her into a place where at least she'll be powerful. Yeah, I think at the very beginning of the conversation, like if just when she when when Nailbiter sat her down and offered her the first choice between the three, if she had just said, "Okay, I choose staying home at the headquarters Mm -hmm. and and doing chores and making dinner for people and stuff. If she had chosen that right away, if she hadn't had this this hesitation, this doubt, this uncertainty, they might have let her do that. But once they they see clearly that she is just so indecisive and and unwilling to make any kind of choices i think that's when they were like okay we got to eliminate this it has to be one of these other two now yeah no i think you're exactly right that that sounds familiar yeah and i like that forcing forcing the issue mm-hmm. so we jump ahead to the next part which is 20 minutes ago side piece uh, is is sent away kind of sent away again uh this time sent away from the battle because they say she's a liability yeah, that's I mean, that's beat two of her kind of being sent away. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. My my favorite part is when she calls Ashley a Q-tip, though. Yes. 
It's, it's wonderful. That was great. Yeah, it, it took me a minute to <laughs> to remember why Ashley would be a Q-tip, but uh, yeah. I got it. Uh, so Colt is like all jittery from the pill. Uh, she glasses uh, the breakdown capes through her binoculars. She sees Damsel. Of course, she calls a- Ashley Damsel because, because <laughs> of course, she would. Uh, Lookout, yeah. Imp, Floor, Samuel, the blonde, and Roman, the black-haired, heartbroken. You can immediately observe uh, that their party forgot to roll a tank and instead went with <laughs> all fragile spellcasters and then like two rogues. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about right when they first split up that Victoria was very explicit in her fact that we can't split these up guys up strategically. We have to do it because some of these people are going to kill each other. Um, so like I think we're seeing that pay off again and again. And the fact that these 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 fights are kind of mismatched, like the, the, the team composition is kind of not ideal for any of the situations they're in. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, yeah. The, so the, the part I really enjoy about this part of the story and, and as we lead into the fight itself, um, like Colt is looking through her binoculars and immediately sees Samuel and Roman and is like, Ooh, they're really, really nice to look at. And she's like, I've, I've liked guys before, but I haven't like really, really liked guys before. And, and I think it's important to note that throughout the rest of this chapter, our, our point of view character is like riding high on a drug. Mm-hmm. And so she's, her her narration is going to be a little inconsistent and a little all over the place and confused and i think that that's that's part of what we're seeing here is like she's about to go into this fight um this she's about to be handed a gun and told you can shoot some of them um and her focus is those are good looking dudes yeah just to emphasize how surface level my my first read through can be uh it didn't occur to me at all that there was anything more to this pill than that it was like some kind of amphetamine the first time right. through and I was just like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. It's it's making her all amped up and, and, and you know, getting her blood up and making her aggressive. And, and yeah, sure, that, that, that'll affect her thoughts this way. But it's also interesting how it, like, seems to, like, make brights brighter and darks darker and stuff like that. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's hitting her on a maybe different psychic level than um, a simple, you know, street drug would. Sure. Um, we're going to talk about this when we get there, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, to cement what we're talking about, though, that she's kind of like she's there, but kind of not there Mm -hmm. is like they've been noticed. So the attack was happening now. Gun tag. (laughs) She 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 had a gun. And like, it's just like it's just like the the kind of random, like whatever thought pops into your head, musings of someone on something. Yeah, right. I mean, she's I mean, as we'll see in a little bit, she's the one who shoots somebody in this fight. So she's clearly like completely kind of deranged in this moment. So Lovelace yeah. gives her orders. The attack squad is given permission to kill, uh, except for Lookout and Floor. Yeah, we've got some real kind of arbitrary age murder cutoffs. Yeah. In this, like, like, because, I mean, all the heartbroken are children, right? I mean, some of them are older, elder teenagers than others, but um, we, we've kind of, we've kind of decided that it's, Okay, it's like it's okay if they're a little bit older children. I mean, that's the whole thing with Colt, right? They said many times throughout the, the conversation with her before they gave her the pill that um, you yeah. you are an adult. You're not a kid. If the, if you were a kid, this would be easier. But you are not a kid. Um, so they've they've got these arbitrary lines that Love Lost has decided to set. I guess I guess the cutoff is however old her daughter was when yeah, she probably. died i guess <laughs> probably yeah we I, I do love that we have 
in in these chapters, we've got uh, Lord of Loss over there, whose code of life is apparently, I can do whatever, whatever I'm hired to do. That's my code. Yep. And Love Lost is murdering is fine, except if you're under like 13 or something. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, I'll nail down that age at a future date. And um, these are such like horseshit codes, but, but these people sort of like cling to them as like their only way of functioning as human beings. Yeah. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, the black haired Roman uh, seems to lure kitchen sink in with a power that induces rage in the other man while simultaneously making Roman kind of enraged, but also he can fight really well. So yeah, it's a cool little power there. It's the first time we've seen it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. He makes that, he makes kitchen sink recklessly charge at him and is like both, he's forced to fight him, but it seems just better at it than this guy who's just lost his shit. Yeah. He's got like a fencer's stance yeah. with, with his hand. Um, so I'll comment. I made that comment earlier about how people hold back and it costs them. So damsel is a fucking badass in this fight. And you can't help but think that things would have gone differently if she had been willing to use her power to blast through Nailbiter's fingers and appendages. Yeah, it would have been much easier for her. She's having to jump around those things instead of just through them. Right, like she's she's definitely a huge asset in this fight. She She's the one who basically almost wins it for them. And, and yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get through that. But she doesn't because she keeps having to avoid Nailbiter's claws instead of just obliterating them, which yeah. I, I don't see any reason why she couldn't. Like she can obliterate everything. So, yeah. They were right about her. She's gone soft. Mm -hmm. Bring back the old Ashley. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so before we move on, there's something I wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about earlier in the chapter, but that really occurred to me. Um, is this these recurring beats throughout the story where Colt is um, thinking about her family? I mean, we have the direct moments where she's saying, uh, can I go back to them? No, I can't. But there's also just random moments throughout the story where something happens and she links the, the something that happens back to a member of her family. She has a moment really earlier in the chapter where she's relaying a piece of advice her dad gave her about um, surrounding yourself with big people. Um, and it, 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 it kind of makes her uncomfortable that she has that thought uh, right here um, when she hears floor kind of lose her shit and scream like a crazy person. Um, it made her think think of her sister Reese and she hadn't thought of Reese in a while. She hadn't got along with Reese in ever, but she still missed her. And then by the end of this chapter, there's another instance of, well, where she offhandedly mentions her mother um, when she's talking about, you know, I think uh, a scale of one to 10 on pain. She talks about her mom was always in the hospital for hip pain. She thought she'd heard a lot about pain skills, had her mother heard her mother complain about how arbitrary a 10 was. And it's like, I just love this recurring beat of she's thinking about her parents in these ways that make you feel like they're, they're there just outside her, her thought, right? That's a, anything that is tangentially related to something she's heard or something that reminds me, reminds her of them jumps back into that. And it's almost to say like, Go home. Yeah. Go go home. Go to your family. What are you doing? What are you doing here? Go home. You're stupid. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, she clearly misses them, but there's that there's that anger, you know. Yeah. There's that there's that and the, and that feeling of rejection, I think, where she probably incorrectly feels like they wouldn't take her back. Mm -hmm. Um and it's not like, like she did have like what seemed like a pretty bad home life, but yeah, but she's still missing it. You know, it's complicated. Uh, so 
she kind of decides that she's going to shoot somebody. So she shoots Samuel, uh, which severely pisses off Imp, uh, who gets a hold of her and takes her gun. Um, Damsel then takes out Disjoint, who was the one holding Lookout in place, allowing Lookout to use her flash gun, uh, which forces Hookline to let Floor get closer to Colt. So basically there's this kind of domino effect set off essentially by Damsel and Imp. And the consequence is that the battle turns in favor of Breakdown. Colt starts to kind of lose it, and her panic culminates as Imp uh, shoves uh, her toward Floor, who is, you know, terrifying. Yeah, very, very terrifying. The way in which she shoots Samuel is so disturbing, though, Matt. Like, it's so, like, just like everything else we were talking about in her kind of drug-addled state, it's, like, detached and instinctual. Um, Like, I love how she describes it. There was a horrible, jarring kick, and corresponding to that kick, the boy kicked back and flumped to the ground in a horrible, jarring way. Flumped to the ground. I don't. I don't even know if that's a word. <laughs> yeah, but it works perfectly. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah, yeah, it, it works perfectly that it wouldn't be a word. Yeah, um, um, I like the doubling but, of horrible, jarring. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like she compares it to uh, Roman's power, right? Is like there's an opposite and equal reaction to reaction to every action, and and like. Just like just like I just got kicked back by this gun, Roman got or Samuel got kicked back. Uh-huh. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. It's like so detached to the consequences of what she actually just did. She shot someone and it doesn't really like occur to her. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's also in this moment of like panic because the yeah. the battle seems to be turning against them. And you know, then of course we see Love Lost and Nailbiter are kind of just hanging back. Yeah, the looking looking confident. We get that specific beat, right, where it says Love Loss and Nailbiter looked so confident and Colt wasn't sure why. Um and this is like this is what really sends us down the uh there's some they knew something was going on with this drug they gave her, right? Yeah. Um because, you know, it, it's not like the whole team is confident. It's it's these two people ex- explicitly who were the two people that knew what was going down uh with Colt specifically. So it, it's it seems very intentional to point you down that 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 path. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely I, I don't know if I knew what to make of this on the first read through, but on, yeah. on on subsequent ones it seems clear that they were waiting for this to happen. She also um fires her gun again blindly before she <laughs> triggers, which is stupid. I yeah. think at Kenzie, I thought for a second there. Um, it doesn't say specifically who she's aiming at, but she's like looking away because Kenzie's using her flash gun and just kind of firing. Yeah. Uh, and then I think we were, we're, we're we assume that is imp that stops her, right? That cause she gets stopped by someone Yeah. and then she says, and the next person who was picking me up was love lost. And part of me wondered in that moment, like, was it imp that stopped you from shooting or was it love lost? that <laughs> went like, Oh God, oh, Jesus. <laughs> She's just shooting indiscriminately while she can't see. I got to stop her. Uh, why did I make this decision? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually think it was Imp, but I like that. It probably uh, was. I, I like that imagery of just like, oh, no, she's going to trigger now. And this is going to this is going to be on my head. So she does. She, she's somewhere else. And it's another not normal trigger event. It's very abstract in a way where, you know, they're always abstract, but it's hard. It's it's hard to figure out what's happening in this one. Exactly. There, there's a vast approaching object. The focus is on the heart of this approaching object, uh, whether it's an entity or a shard or a bunch of shards, I'm not sure. Um, But there's this pit of power at the core of it, language reminiscent of the other descriptions from the other broken trigger events we've seen in the story. Colt makes the same choice that she made before with Nailbiter. She doesn't want to leave. 
but she doesn't want to go all in either. So she refuses to take the greater share of the power, but she leaves with something of a vestige of it, enough that when she emerges, she has a strong power. Yeah, so let's talk about this for a bit. Um, I mean, the first thing we have to talk about is this idea that we could have just witnessed what would have been a broken trigger under any other circumstances, but in this specific circumstance with this specific person, with this specific personality, um, they're the only one that in their indecision is capable of resisting this well of power that we've been talking about. Um, so they stand, they step back from it. Um, so that's interesting, right? Like this is, this is, we're kind of getting maybe a hint into what the broken triggers are. It's like, uh, the shards are saying, come take all of this. And most people don't have the capacity to do that. And it, it kind of spirals and chains into this terrible broken trigger event. Right. Yeah. There's there's something to do with the, the lack of, of built-in limitation that has been put in on the shards right. um, by by Scion and Eden. Uh, in this case, may, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You can you can theory craft about it. I think it's probably something along those those general lines, though. Yeah, but so what do we think is happening here? And by here, I mean with with the shards, with the entities. Like, what is because this is the third or fourth time we've in this book we've referenced this great well that people get a, a glimpse of this is you know the third time i think that we've referenced um this this idea of standing on the edge and you just have to take a, a step to fall in um what what do we think what 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 is going on with these shards do we have any any kind of hint at this point in the story what we where we think this is this is going what's happening here well i, I don't know if i have any new insight based on this chapter i mean i i've and I think I think the fandom at large is kind of this this idea that, you know, maybe the shards, the, you know, the shards themselves were originally organisms, and, yeah. and they kind of over many generations and and a bit of kind of intentional engineering on their own part, they they form together into kind of these colony organisms. And the thing is, like that's that describes animal life too. I mean, we we, we used to be. You know, every one of our cells used to be an, an organism of its own. But I think there's a distinction here, which is that some of these shards may actually be like millions of years old, um, like indi- yeah. like individually and have their own kind of each of these shards has its own mind, if you will. Like they're they're weird alien minds, um, but they're they may be even more alien than Scions was. Um, but but there's some sense in which the shards it's in the shards individual interest to perpetuate the cycle um because they they will individually die if the yeah. cycle is not continued so or or maybe not the cycle per se but but something some continuation of their existence maybe they're trying to lure humanity into saying like okay well if if we can't be responsible for our own perpetuation then maybe you guys will will take care of us yeah i, I i'm i'm f- this this all sounds well and good to my like science fiction fantasy brain, but <laughs> but I'm sure that there's like a really elegant answer that ties this into the trauma and and recovery theme. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've read about you know this idea that they are looking for like a replacement entity, right? That that like the the shards are looking for something to pour all their power into to to steer the ship of all the shards like to something to to become that control mechanism Mm -hmm. um and they're just kind of offering it to different people and um people can't take it 
like that's that's by design like like they were locked off and depowered before they were handed out to people because people could not survive this stuff so they're kind of searching for maybe the person or the people that could um and and that 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 does i i find that interesting but you're right like I haven't found a way to like clearly link that to what I think the themes of the story are. And, and as we saw in worm, the, the plan of the entities and, and what was going on with them very much linked to the, the themes that the story was discussing. So yeah. there is, there is probably a very like very poetic linkage here that we're just not seeing yet. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the best I can get is Scion being obliterated was, um, a, a trauma a, a trauma has been incurred upon the shards, which are, if you think about it, an alien race in yeah. a certain sense. And so they're all trying to recover from this trauma too. Yeah. And their version, of, I, I like that because their version of recovery, if, if this, this create new entity theory is correct, their version of recovery is to just try to go back to the way things were before. Right. And mm-hmm. we've been talking about, um, about how that doesn't work and, and that, that push and pull between let's get everything back to the way it was before versus let's grow and change and new and become something new. And and I like how the shards could be in their own version of this, where they're, they're trying to, to either decide whether to try to recreate existence as it was prior to the death of the entities versus trying to change and grow and develop into some new kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that could work. Yeah. could work. Yeah. I like like that. Cool. Good. Um, so just as the, uh, the, we get the trigger, we get the sense that it would have been a broken trigger. And then the time is now probably, <laughs> uh, perhaps even when Victoria's looking in on how our team is doing right now. Uh, yeah. and we see that love lost team has just won like immediately, uh, perhaps even like almost instantly winning when Colt used her new power, whatever it is. Um, yeah. and Colt's feelings are tumultuous. Love lost doesn't seem happy that this has happened. Um, although we can be almost certain it was orchestrated. Yeah. And that's kind of where I think that's where we leave it to is that whatever this drug was, it, it seemed to force a a trigger situation, Mm -hmm. um, which is, which is new, right? That's not something that has existed in the past. Has it? No, it's only been hinted, um, in, um, Valkyrie's interlude where she references like a group of, of warlords having, been one of the groups that figured out how to how to trigger powers yeah um, yeah and it's like yeah well i mean yeah, we kind of knew we were going to see this right at some point yeah um yeah assuming uh, that's what this is yeah, yeah it certainly seems like it yeah um yeah and, and i love that 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 like you see love lost as this and and that's like I, love lost is this <sighs> I, I kind of want to hate her in time, like, because like that, that's the central, like she's sitting here like, oh, I'm so bummed it had to be this way. And it's like, no, you did it though. Yeah. Like you did, you did that. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're kind of a freaking hypocrite. And it's yeah. just like, it's just like, oh, I'm so bummed. Like, yeah, like it's just, come on, this team right. sucks. Like, yeah. I mean, they're all cool. I love them as characters, but they're bad, bad people. And I want our, our good guys to make them go away. Yeah, I mean she's she's like a, a rage monster. She's yeah. <laughs> that none, none of her decisions are from a place of what is best for everyone. Like like ever, it's just it's just revenge and and rage and violence and so yeah. That's question uh-huh. speculation time uh-huh. speculation time a little bit. Are we on the path towards uh, a love lost 
being killed by the end of this arc or the one after it? Do you, is that where you think the story's going? Um, cause I think we could be heading that way. I think, I think it'd be very interesting to see, you know, rain killed snag and went through this growth experience and he finds himself in another situation where he might have to kill another member of his cluster. And, and what is that going to do to him when it happens? That, that seems like where we could be heading with this. Yeah. I mean, I would, I was, I'm thinking if, if she is killed, it's more likely to be cradle who does it. Um, that's fair. Or, and that's fair. because basically I foresee, I foresee a conflict between her and cradle because, um, their their only reason to work together is out of hate for rain. They actually yeah. have like nothing in common, and 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 um, he seems pretty horrible. Like it seems like we're trying to cast him as like the next level of bad, uh, and yeah, and yeah. And, that, and that he would even be willing to go after her for the, for her share of power. So either I I either think he's going to come after her or she's going to come after him and die. Um, but I I actually do think. I actually do think she's going to die and yeah, that, that seems, yeah, seems to be the, the direction we're heading. Right. I yeah. think the, the more we learn about her, the more we see both the good and bad parts of her and, and kind of, kind of we're painting this picture of this person that is beyond redemption almost that, that this person that we're, we're making very clear, like even, even if she kills rain, she, she's not going to be done. Right. This is not, this is not going to end. This is eternal. This is, she's caught in a loop yeah and um that seems to be heading towards death uh, yeah. but you never know you never know yeah maybe i'm making too much of a couple of word choices in this chapter too but like i wonder if there could be an element where colt uh is a bit of a wild card in in who, who knows what i mean by that exactly but like she didn't just get a power she got what seems like a brokenly strong power in, yeah in, it seems in, almost like an i win yeah <laughs> power yeah and um that could play into things in a, in a surprising way in terms of changing, um, in terms of changing the, the, the way the game board looks right now in some sense, but, yeah. but it, and it, cer- yeah. it certainly would be poetic, right? That, yeah, that she love lost created a monster to this girl. Yeah. 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 I like it. Would show that she's not learning any of her lessons. Love lost. Nope. Jesus. Not at all. So we're informed that the injured breakthrough ciders uh, will be given medical attention if the others behave uh, and then the villains proceed to the next fight, presumably. Oh, good. Thank you very much for your giving us medical attention. Very nice. Yeah. I mean, Asshole. So we're assuming that Samuel is like not already dead from his yeah. from his apparently so bad that he just like flopped over and didn't get up again. Gunshot wound. Yeah, but I mean, Colt's probably a bad aim. Like, it probably just hit a shoulder or something. Yeah, well, I mean, she wasn't even aiming, so. <laughs> True. In, in, in movies, whenever the person isn't aiming, that's when they get a headshot on the first time. Yeah. That's and, and, you know, the great part about movies is once you take the bullet out of that body. They're fine. First, they're fine. Yeah, it's it doesn't a, matter it's, the, yeah. It doesn't matter the things in the body that have been ripped up as it travels through it. Once it's out of there. You're good, yeah. man. Doesn't matter good. that the bullet dropped from supersonic to stationary within a few inches of your flesh. <laughs> All right. Let's move on from the chapters into the community spotlight. And the question last week was choose an emotional manipulation power in parahumans and discuss what the power says about the character who wields it. So first we start with exe JPEG uh, Windows Movie Viewer file. Uh fear and awe aura. From Victoria, it's hinted at in Worm and confirmed in Ward that Victoria is a genuinely nice and altruistic person, 
uh, to people that she felt were on her side or deserved protection, even going out of her way to protect people when it would have been easier just to stand aside, such as the incident Madison talked about in Glowworm. We can also see this in how Vicky really was Amy's best friend and the only member of the Dallin family that really connected with her. But when confronting people she did, that she doesn't like or views as an enemy, Victoria can be surprisingly cruel and brutal, inspiring fear in the people she manages to win against, such as using torture as an interrogation method, her previously domineering and uncompromising attitude during combat, and general disregard for the pain she inflicted. This also fits in with her characterization as the cop character and reflects how a lot of people feel about them in real life. Friends and families of cops do often hold them in reverence and view them in awe and have actual positive experiences that reinforce this view, while most anyone that comes into conflict with the police just feels dread and fear when seeing them. I like that. I like that last note because that, that feels that feels absolutely authentic. Yeah. Yeah, I like this a lot. I, I the the thing that I like most about this is I think this is entirely accurate, and I think that slot her it slots perfectly into why her aura worked the way it did. But it's different now, mm-hmm. and so if if you if you take this metaphor for how she feels about the people around her and how her aura is reflected, and how she feels about the people around her and how the people around her feel about her, and you push it into present day Victoria, where her aura seems to be mostly just the fear part. Um, that does say something about our protagonist, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm still waiting for the other shoe shoe to drop with regards to what's going on there. But yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely indicates that something in her character has changed because I mean, the powers are like a metaphorical window into the character. And so when a a power changes, it means the character's changed. I mean, on, on the simplest level, I mean, it could, it could definitely show her, her loss of, uh, reverence and respect for the people that are most important to her, right? Like mm-hmm. if if she cares deeply about these people and and wants to be impressive to them, um, and and what Amy did to her has ripped that away, and it is not as much of a concern to her anymore. Ergo, mm-hmm. awe is gone. Or potentially even her uh, respect for herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like both absolutely. of those. Cool. All right, next up we have Calerno or Calinero. I think I always say that wrong. Sorry, <laughs> Calinero. That's embarrassing. Um, who picked Cherish. And they say, when compared to the rest of the Heartbroken, Cherish appears to have a much more powerful and more flexible power. But that power comes with some serious limitations, and those limitations are represented in Cherish's character herself. Cherish's power is all about manipulation, and Cherish makes a mistake of thinking it is the same thing as control. At every step, she overestimates her own abilities and bites off more than she can chew. She uses a bomb around the neck to keep herself safe, which is a great metaphor for the with for the loaded gun she's playing with by being involved with the Nine and attempting to mind control them. That attempted mind control backfires on her as well. She thinks she knows how to manipulate the Nine, but they're playing along with her all along. Even in her most benign and seemingly useful power, her emotion sensing fails her when it counts. She gets accurate information on Skitter. She gets inaccurate information on Skitter. If she had done better, the nine might have left with a truly terrifying addition to their team and Cherish might have ended up in a better spot. So I like this, this idea that like she's got this this far range emotion sensing power and she's able to inflict different emotions on people, which is different from the rest of the heartbroken. You know, each of them so far seem like focused on a certain emotion or limited to a certain thing. So hers is much, much far ranging, but it's it's hampered by her like inability to uh, understand the effective use of it and that leads her into trouble, trouble after trouble. Like I love, 
this basic idea that she's using it to try to control people and being controlled all the time. Yeah, right. I I, uh, I think that hers is the only one that actually sounds like it's just strictly better than what Heartbreakers was. Um, yeah. But but you know it it always seems like the strongest capes have like the most glaring personality flaws that lead to their downfall. Like yeah, I mean Lung is kind of the the, the famous example of just like why does he always get into these fights that he ends up losing? It seems like he should never lose. It's like yeah, why does he exactly? <laughs> That's the whole thing, right? Um. Next, Sarah Penguin discusses candy, and they say, unlike most other emotional manipulators who use terror, anger, or other negative emotions, she is a villain who used happiness while still being nightmarish. Her power seems to be the embodiment of of an abused child trying to please her abuser so that the abuse is not as bad as it could be, with the making people hate what they love being that the child can never truly succeed and the attempts most likely backfire and make it worse. I love that. I love that idea of her power represent like like I am trying so hard to please you. And in my efforts to please you, I'm just making you hate that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it does very much feel like and a, a reaction to an abused child. I just want to make you happy, dad. I just want to make you happy. Here's here. Like I'm going to fill you with your wildest dreams. And all it does is 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 taint the person's love of that thing, um, which would exact be exactly what it feels like when you're when your parents are abusive assholes. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's perfect. All right. Up next, we have roundest frog who lists his, uh, Monikeros. Um, they say that her emotional power lines up perfect, perfectly with a lot of things common in child predators. It works best on targets who are alone since it can only affect one. And those who are gullible enough to let the emotions truly affect them like kids. It, it feeds her information about them both through their eyes and mind, which lets her better manipulate them. Her entire power is about putting herself in a position of power over someone vulnerable. However, it has some pretty blatant fault flaws. First, the moment she's dealing with more than one person, she's at a serious disadvantage. Second, if her target gets wise to what she's doing, she's effectively powerless against them. Just like with actual child predators, the moment others get involved or the moment their victims break free of their control, she's finished. Uh, I like that a lot, too. Yeah, that's fantastic i'd almost embarrassed that none of that occurred to me before (laughs) yeah i never really thought about it in that kind of way and and the second i read this i was like yeah of course that's exactly that makes perfect sense i love the idea of she wants to get them alone because it works better when it's just the two of them um, which is terrifyingly accurate to to what child predators do right and and also the sense that like if there's anyone else present casting doubt on kind of the illusion that the predator is creating it it breaks the illusion essentially um, yeah, or at least it's not as effective. Anti Chris discusses love lost and says, despite the fact that she loved her daughter and doubtlessly had good times with her, she went from being an absent and neglectful mother to one who verbally abused her daughter, just as she shouted at her husband in the very beginning of her interlude. She wasn't able to get enough of a handle on her anger to be better for her daughter. Uh, she did love and does regret mistreating. She failed to rise above her anger before she triggered. And after the trigger, uh, with it replaying regularly regularly, and her shard pushing her, she makes no attempt to do so. Instead, she eagerly does what her power enables and encourager, encourages her to do. She drags other people down to her level. She targets people and fills them so full of rage that they lash out at the people around them, the people they trust and value and even love. No matter how much they know they will regret it later, they cannot truly them, uh, control themselves and they attack their allies just like she did. Yeah, I mean... I love this and and it goes very much in line with what we were saying the other day about Rain's power being like he he is full of of doubt and and regret and self-loathing 
And so he projects that onto other people. She is full of rage and an inability to control herself from, from lashing out at people. And that's exactly what she projects on the people. Um, and, and I think you could say the same thing about Snag's power. And we don't understand tr- cradles yet, but I'll be interested to see what that is. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I love I love that idea around like Antichrist takes a pretty savage swing at Love Lost here. I don't think they're they're uh, very forgiving of any of the choices Love Lost makes. And I kind of love it because they're like, you could have you were a cop like uh, Antichrist says you were a cop. You got a power. You could have gone right like there was a path for you right to the heroes and that path to the heroes might have been the most effective and moral way to to punish the people who did this to you um you know you join the heroes and and strike out against the fallen right i mean that that seems like a very obvious thing to do but as antichrist says she's not necessarily interested in that she's interested in just feeding that rage and 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 doing it in any way possible she's hypocritical she doesn't she she draws certain lines and not others um i I love this this painting of a character who's just completely ruled by that rage to the point of any kind of of logical thought process isn't there anymore yeah yeah absolutely all right since says roman my theory is that he's the type of person who, during an argument, has a hard time keeping objective. He's probably the type of person who, when he gets angry during an argument, expects the other party to interject as much emotion into it. From there, it's fairly easy to guess how he got his power. At one point, he got into an argument, maybe this is something that happened a lot, in which the other person had either no real interest, wouldn't invest themselves emotionally, or, and considering his family, this is a real possibility, was unable or prevented from caring about the argument. I like this this point of view a lot because it's it's like saying, like, I I'm going to yell at you until you get pissed off at me enough to engage me in this this fight I want. Right. So it's like it's like the other person is not really engaged with you, but you're going to force the issue. It's like kind of arguing on the Internet. We're like, I'm going to I'm going to set out to piss you off. So you come to me and now we get to have our argument that I wanted to have. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can be it can be very enraging when you're you're upset in a way that feels authentic and, and the other person is being condescending to the point of not even acknowledging that there's anything to be upset about. And, and sometimes you just want, want, you want to see them be upset. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's his power. <laughs> yeah. And the like way that. you win is by making them so mad that they stop behaving in any kind of rational way. Yeah. Right. Which is, which is not really what you wanted, which is no. why it's a power. Yep. Finally, uh, we have Macy one, uh, saying, uh, Taylor, wait, what? Uh, so they say, uh, not, so, so yeah, this is not really in the spirit, in the spirit of the question, but we'll, we'll let them do this as uh, they're running a, uh, the cool, uh, packed analysis show, which you should check out and you should also read packed, uh, cause it's great. Uh, the, <laughs> it discusses how Taylor would offload her emotions onto her bugs, which represents how she would compartmentalize and avoid negative thoughts and emotions. This all culminates according to Macy in the end of the book. When confronted by Contessa without her bugs or any other outlets to flee from her emotions, she confesses to Contessa and says she would have done things very differently. Um, and, and they say, I also think it contrasts fantastically with Victoria. Victoria outputs emotions onto other people, emotions which potentially reflect her own state of mind if some theories are to be believed, whereas Taylor offloads her own feelings onto bugs. Victoria is constantly trying to connect with people and reach out. Taylor went her own way and wanted things done her way. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like this too. Not really the question we were asking, <laughs> but we'll let it slide. Well, and, yeah. And quite a few, 
few of you guys said, I just want to talk about this person. It's not really an emotional power, but guys. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting to see how some of these how almost everything impinges on emotionality at some level, because right. that's like what makes an interesting character. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's cool. Um, Scott, did you want to take this uh, notable that there was a notable thread on the subreddit that was not uh, under the we've got word thread? Yeah. So we sometimes highlight these things and I don't want to do this too often because I don't want our show to just turn into reading other people's threads. Um, but there was something I saw today. Uh, I, I, I should have pulled who said it before I said I was going to do this, but um, they were talking about uh, the, th- the thread title is Ward quote helped I- in real life with my family yet again. A thank you to Wild Bo. And it's just a person talking about how they've taken the things that they've read about and seen in this book and it has helped them through difficult times in their real life. And um, I-, I just wanted to point this out because. I love books and I love reading and I love the power that storytelling can have. And I love seeing, you know, real life uh, consequences to people reading these stories and that and that it is it is helping them. It is changing their lives for the better. And that is what stories can do. That is the power stories have. And I encourage you guys. I, I don't want to go through and, 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 you know, read it all. It was a very personal story that I, I, I don't I don't want to just, you know, jump on the bandwagon for. So I'm not going to really get into the details of it, but I, I just encourage you to, to drop into the subreddit and, and take a look at the story because it is really beautiful and really impactful. And and let us never forget that this is what stories can do. Um, they're some of the most powerful things on the planet. And I, I love them so much. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. So the discussion question for this next week will be doubt and regret are pervasive themes in both Worm and Ward. Pick a character and discuss how doubt or and or regret played into their story. And don't say, okay, I want to talk about this character, but I don't really have anything to say about <laughs> doubt and regret. Don't do that. Talk about doubt and regret. Answer the question, Misi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at indecisive mortinamail. That's right. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. We've got another great, exciting week. We've moved Vow to View to a new time. It comes out on Tuesdays now. Um, we've got Doofcast this Friday. I think we're covering a, a webcomic, right? It's another one of our uh, patron-produced episodes. We're covering the webcomic Unsounded. That'll be out this Friday. Um, we're getting close to wrapping up the, uh, the, the the first official Doof Play StarCraft tournament, Matt. Um, we're on to the finals. We have the final match. I think we're going to try to do that sometime this weekend, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff can be found if you head on over to doofmedia.com and follow us on our Twitter, and you can see when we're doing all that stuff. There's a lot of really exciting things coming on. Our book club is coming up again next week. There's always, always, always new content to see over there. So go check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. 
Uh, supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in the quarterly fan art and the yearly costume contest, Q&A sessions with me and Scott, access to live streams of our recording sessions like this very one, uh, and our excellent and lively Discord chat. Um, no new uh, Patreon patrons this week, but I, I noticed that uh, someone named Patricia H. has been donating to us via PayPal regularly for two or three months, actually. Uh, so we wanted to, of course, give the shout out. Um, it's, you know, it's, unfortunately, there's no real way to like hook that into the way Patreon does things. Um, yeah. but of course we, we still certainly appreciate uh, the donations, even if it's through PayPal. Um, so yeah, yeah thank and, you and, for that. And Patricia, if you're listening to this, um, and you would like access to our discord, um, since you can't go through Patreon, send us an email and we can get you a link to get you in there because you are donating to us. That is the reward for any level on Patreon. So it, I feel like it's only fair that you get it too. So send us an email at gotwormpod at gmail.com and uh, we will send you a link. Yeah. And that goes for anybody who, for whatever reason, can't or doesn't want to use Patreon. Yeah. Um, and of course, while you're uh, indecisive over the question of Patreon or PayPal, um, <laughs> make sure you go over to Wildbo's patreon patreon.com slash wildbo and donate to him as well this is his world and we're just playing it and speaking of his world um, i've been reading pact y'all and it's it's real fucking good <laughs> kind of mad at all of all of you for not like telling me how good matt they've been telling us to read pact literally since we started i think episode two of this podcast was uh when you finish worm which which book are you gonna do next well be that as it may <laughs> it's it's real good everybody and and the uh the the deep impact podcast is real good too so go check yeah, that out i i haven't re- listened yet because i have not read it yet but i am meaning to get to that i've just got a to be read list a mile long so but i hope to get to it soon don't worry it's not that long <laughs> it's yes it is it's just not okay, as long as, as worm it's still long. Yeah, no, it's super long. Um, <laughs> and of course, guys, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead always help us out by sharing this podcast with literally everyone you know, sharing our website with everyone you know. It really does make a difference, um, as you'll see in just a little bit, because we have a new review from someone named Samwich, who gives us five stars and says, I love this. Backstory. I randomly discovered Worm in a YouTube comment and decided to give it a try. I fell in love and read the whole thing in a little under a month. Between each of my college classes, I devoured chapter after chapter. Sadly, I had no one to talk to about it. I figured YouTube got me into this. YouTube will help me out again. So I found this podcast and it is absolutely amazing. Scott reminds me that metaphors are a thing and there's always more than just a surface layer. But one part that I feel often gets overlooked is how great Matt is at summarizing key information. I tried talking to a friend into the story of Worm and couldn't do it. Trying to cover all the character beats and intense and intricate battles was too difficult. But Matt has got this down to a science. They are both really funny. Even the... Out of video descriptions are funny, especially Gleaming Part 2. Finally a chance for Byron, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality. I did love when I wrote that joke. Um, <laughs> I now listen to their podcast whenever I cook. Now that I've caught up I, with it, I just listen to old episodes waiting for a new one. These guys are awesome. Anyway, I promised myself I'd write a review and become a patron as soon as I caught up, so I'm going to go do that now. This is the only podcast where I've re-listened to any episodes. It's great. 
wow sandwich that was awesome uh thank you so much i i love just about everything you said here i love that you you put some attention on matt who doesn't i agree doesn't get enough credit for the amazing summary work he's doing i still say that the reason why the only reason i, I why i was as successful with some of my um my speculations back in worm is because matt was very good at at very subtly pointing me towards that information without making it very obvious um i i'm glad you think we're funny i think the most important thing here though matt is i found out about worm in a youtube comment i think this is the perfect example for why if you love something share it with people share it everywhere you can because it works people find things in ways that you never would expect i would never expect people to find worm in a youtube yeah. comment but this is evidence that it happens no i would never expect anything good to come from any youtube comment <laughs> ever um yeah no I've, I've got that little uh squiggly smile on my face indicating uh bashful pleasure um so yeah thanks yeah. I, I really appreciate that sandwich yeah thank thank you so much sandwich and uh what are you What are you cooking right now? Can I Can I have some? Yeah, you got some. You got some chicken. Mm. This chicken. I'm hungry. All right, that's all for this week, and we'll be back next week with some more Arc Eleven blinding. I saw it was an interlude, and I'm very excited to find out who it is. Yeah, is it going to be my long-awaited disjoint interlude? No comments. <laughs> <laughs>